From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. When you see a swarm of bees, you might think that what you are looking at is an army of insects awaiting instructions from a queen. But what Ange Roll sees is a community, one where the hive works collaboratively to make decisions and respond to changes. And Roll thinks we can learn a lot from bees. Roll is a beekeeper, a writer, and a consultant for organizations seeking new ways of approaching work. And they use bees as a metaphor and as teachers. And they say that one of the big lessons that bees can provide us is that there is power in collaboration, cooperation, and reciprocal relationships. Roll is a founder of the nonprofit They Keep Bees and the author of Radicalize the Hive, which is a collection of stories from the field and resources for new and intermediate beekeepers interwoven with their own experience as a beekeeper over the past decade. And Roll, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. Pleased to be here. And you grew up in New York. You were a city kid, but you had a grandmother who raised rabbits. And that was, as I gather, your first connection to the relationship people have with the animals that they raise. What did your grandmother, Connie, you called her, what did she teach you about the relationship between people and and animals? Oh, I'm so glad you brought her into the early early (laughs) part of this conversation. Grandmothers are so important. They really are. They really are. Elders are so important and so undervalued in our current cultural paradigm. Um, yeah, so my grandma, she loved to raise rabbits. She also loved to take me on these walks in the woods where my grandfather would put me up on his shoulder so I could look in the like boral holes in the trees and find, uh, find birds, which I I really loved. And, you know, she, she taught me just an appreciation and maybe the early seeds of the reciprocity between humans and animals. She loved rabbits. She didn't raise them for meat or fur. Uh, she really raised them for, for joy and recreation um, and to stay connected to an agricultural practice. When did you start raising bees? Yeah, great question. Uh, so... I grew up in New York City, and then I moved to uh, Miami when I was fairly young, uh, 16, with my mom. And I went to college very early, and I then became sort of a a wayward young person uh, who traveled a lot and was directionless there for a moment. Um, But after, after some of that, several years of that, I decided I wanted to go back to school. I had been teaching and um, working with children for several years. And I decided I wanted to go back to school in Boston, which is a long sort of sojourn side story, so we won't go there. But um, part of that returning to the New England area was reconnecting with my ancestral lineage. And part of it um, was a desire to be involved in, or or part of it was fueled by a desire to be involved in uh, urban agriculture, which was sort of at the time having a, a a mild resurgence yeah, this was like in the early 2010s, the late 20 yeah. aughts, yeah, right? Like dating. this is like everybody and their sister was raising backyard chickens. <laughs> exactly. And I, I just so happened to land in Jamaica Plain and there was a group of neighbors. They are now called the Boston Food Forest Network, I think. 
and it was through that that network of people that I found other folks who were interested in bees and honeybees specifically. So I ended up um, waiting until the next year and I got uh, bees and I kept them with a friend of mine, Megan, and we had two hives between us uh, and sort of a, a slapdash of different materials that we had gathered uh, from, from beekeepers around us. Uh, and we also were a part of a small group that started the, the Boston Area Beekeepers Association, which at the time had sort of um, faded away. Suffolk County didn't have a beekeeping association and we kickstarted it with a mentor and some friends. And we did this thing called the tour to hives as our, this is a bicycle tour of Boston beekeepers, right? Yeah, exactly. So a bike tour of Boston and Cambridge area beekeepers where we were a little swarm of bicycles instead of a little swarm of bees. Okay. And I, I like, picture these people i know this is probably not how it went but i picture these people in like beekeeping garb bicycling around (laughs) um no people weren't wearing beekeeping garb but they did dress up as bees like yellows and blacks and you know the headbands with the dually dops on the ends there um and and we had uh kazoos so we would we would play we would buzz into the kazoos as we were leaving one location to go to the next person. (laughs) And who you were going to be, it turns out, is in no small part a beekeeper. And one, one of the things you recognized early on was that our relationship with bees, our social relationship was very exploitative, very industrial. And... One of the examples you've given before is the way that bees are moved from place to place across the country. This was something I hadn't known about industrial scale pollination. Can you kind of talk through the way that bees are moved across the country? Yeah. And and to preface that, just knowing that that, that time that I got into beekeeping, that sort of early or what, like mid-aughts was... Um, it was, it was right around the time that the entire quote unquote, save the bees movement was starting. Right. And well, relative to this colony collapse thing. Exactly. And, and that was driving backyard beekeeping, urban beekeeping. It was, it was sort of grabbing onto that reconnection to land that people were desiring and, and marketing it uh, as an opportunity for saviorism. Uh, pollination contracts are what moves bees all around the continent. Uh, and pollination contracts are contracts between beekeepers and farmers, mostly on monocrop agriculture. And to pollinate these things, bees have to be trucked all over the country. Um, they have to be put usually on semis. Uh, they get nets tossed over them. They get driven um, from, you know, 20, 30 hours from one end of the continent to the other uh, and drop down into these monocrops because the monocrops don't have there is no diverse ecology and thus there is no um, habitat for honeybees or native species of bees to thrive. And so they need to bring the pollinators in to pollinate those monocrops. Otherwise the seed doesn't set and you don't get your almonds or your cranberries or your canola seeds, etc. You started then thinking about a different way of how this relationship could and should be. And this would involve rethinking the way that we are stewards of bees 
in a way that doesn't transport them from place to place, but keeps them local and and breeds them to be more resilient to the stresses and and trials and tribulations of whatever that local area is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's about it's about breeding or working with the honeybee stock that you have um, bioregionally. It's also about you know really what it involves is a total re overhaul of our entire agricultural system. But that's probably a oh, is that all? Yeah, just <laughs> just snap your fingers and make that. <laughs> um, and then nested within that is how we're working with honeybees, right? So not pulling them from one part of the country to another, but really working with them to adapt to the bioregion where they are, the, the ecological region where they are, to follow um, the pulses, the expansions and the contractions of that particular region, and to continue to breed what's called locally adaptive stock, which means bees who are adapted to living in the bioregion where they are. I am still currently a migratory beekeeper and I move myself between New England and the Southeast, um, but I don't move my bees. I move sort of smaller um, little little stash hives, we'll call them, for our queens, but we don't move larger hives for the goal of pollination. Um, and we do that because we can get two seasons and thus two layers of research and two um, opportunities to understand bees more deeply. But we're really focused on how are we tending to those bees in that particular bioregion and allowing after generations of those bees living there, the bees to adapt to that bioregion and then breeding from that stock. You're trying to figure out how to bring along these queens and, and all of the bees around them in a way that is more adaptive to the localized climates that they are. So not having a single bee that is hardy enough to go from California to Texas to Minnesota to New York, but really having these um, regionally specific bees, is that a good way to put it? Yeah, exactly. And and when we think about and look backwards in the history of Apis mellifera, Apis mellifera is the honeybee. Honeybee is not endemic to the United States. They were brought here um, either as swarms that were stowed away in boats that traveled here, um, or they were brought here intentionally in skeps, right? And so we're really trying to sort of unwind or untangle ourselves from this extractive relationship and reclaim this relationship we're working with them to increase their resilience, as well as their genetic diversity, because diversity for honeybees, for honeybee breeding is incredibly important. A queen needs to mate with many drones or male bees in order to have a full and healthy and productive spermatheca. And that's the little, this little um, organ that she has that she lays eggs from. And so that organ needs to be full. And it also needs to be full of these different um, samples from different drones so that she can be adaptive to different elements like drought uh, or increased rains because she's able to pull on the different material that she's storing in that spermatheca. So in order for us to change our relationship with bees, we, we really need to understand them better. And I guess that starts 
with this idea of how hives operate. Uh, you you were just explaining the ways in which uh, queens and drones interact in order to create the adaptability that they need to survive in a local area. What we tend to think about when we think about queens, though, is that the queen is the leader. The queen is the big decision maker. But that's not actually how it works. And... No, it's totally false. It's totally <laughs> false. I saw this really fascinating meme the other day, and I it was all about native bees. And it was so excellent, the, the facts that they were sharing about native bees. But then on the same meme slide deck, they were like, and honeybees only follow a queen, and they are subservient to her. And I was like, no, guys, that's wrong. That's totally false. <laughs> and, and one of the ways we know this is false is from what happens when a single colony splits into two two exactly exactly so what, yeah talk about talk about what's happening relative to bee decision making when when we see this thing happen this swarm happening totally okay so first honeybee queen bees are not in charge at all honeybees make all of their decisions through pheromone-based communication vibrational communication and dance which is how the workers or the sister bees talk to each other when a hive splits in two, um, when it hive is experiencing incredible abundance and they are able to reproduce, they do something called swarming. And unfortunately, in our media, we've been taught that swarms of bees are angry clouds of bees that chase you into a lake and then you have to jump in, not to get stung, right? But this is actually when they're at their most peaceful state, though, right? This is the safest exactly. time they'd be around bees. The cartoons lied to us. Can you believe it? <laughs> but, <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's actually, as you're saying, Matthew, that's, it's when they're at their most docile uh, because they have nothing to defend. So a swarm happens when a hive in the springtime brings in so much abundance that they have packed the whole hive wall to wall with food and baby bees who are now emerging from their little cells and eating ravenously. And at this point, the hive starts to get really, really crowded and bees don't have what's called the bee space to move with, within each other. So they're bumping into each other and they're causing too much vibration. Uh, and at that point, the workers will start talking to each other about the need to split um, the hive and they will start raising a cell. Or This can be any egg in the hive that's 24 hours old or less. So it's this tiny little larva and they will start feeding that age larva, 24 hours old, um, a diet of royal jelly. And they will not feed them a diet of bee bread, which is a mix of pollen and nectar. And which is what everybody else gets. Which is what everyone else gets. It's what suspends their um, hormone production uh, and basically makes them worker bees. But these little these little larva friends, they get royal jelly instead, and they get an abundance of royal jelly, and that triggers the other workers who are tending the um, the cells, the nurse bees, to feed them more of that royal jelly and to not give them what everyone else gets, to draw those cells down long so that they can develop a queen inside. And those are called queen cells. Those cells take about five days to cap um, to, to completely seal them over. And so in that five days, the bees start... Uh, not neglecting the queen, but kind of, kind of underfeeding her so that her... Um, her abdomen starts to 
contract. So she gets smaller. So queens can fly, um, but they can't fly very far because they have that big, long abdomen that you you think about that long end of them. Um, that's actually where their spermatheca is. It's where they store all of their sexual organs. It's a really important part of them and very delicate. Uh, but if that is um, sort of starved down, essentially, then they can't, they can fly more efficiently. And then once those cells are completely capped, they make a decision that half the bees will split off, half the bees will stay behind with the old hive, the young babies, and that queen cell, that new queen that they're raising. And that will be the new hive. And now we have the swarm, which is the mother hive, their mother queen, who has left the original location. Uh, and they are going to go and hang out. And it's called biovacking. <clears throat> and this is the like evacuate is like biovacking, like evacuating. Yes. Like so they evacuate the hive and the biovac is when sometimes you'll see them. Uh, there was just a massive swarm in Times Square. So it was like, um, like a massive ball of bees and inside the center of that ball is the queen. So that's all they're protecting, right? They're not protecting any young, like we said before, and they're more docile because of that. So this is a, th this swarm that is not a monarchy at all. Like this is a, a community. And you've said the swarm is a community that moves at the speed of trust. And this is an idea that's been sort of popular in organizational leadership teachings for some time, but it's something that you think bees have really gotten down well. What's the lesson to be learned from bees in this way? Yeah, I love that question. Uh, so they're, they're not making a decision here based on a charismatic leader, a monarch, a queen. They're not making a decision based on what each individual bee wants to do. They're making a decision based on like a, an epigenetic knowing, right? Like a trusting that the scout bees who are a part of them are, have gone out into the world. They have evaluated what's out around them in the ecosystem, what possible new locations are. And they are now doing a dance to share the information. And in the swarm decision-making, it's not about, oh, did the scout bee, which scout bee did the, the best shuffle? It's really about which information is going to be the best for our collective. And then once all- Wait, 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 wait. You're saying this isn't Apis Mellifera's Got Talent? No, it's not. <laughs> such a great show, though. <laughs> <laughs> you should see the dances some of these bees do for foraging. It's just gobstopping. So- they are listening to those dances and all of that information, digesting it, and then taking up the dance of the scout bee who has made, who has shared the best information possible for them. And I think a lesson, like this is a lesson on trust because it's not just a trust of that individual scout bee, but it's a trust that's in ourselves. It's a re- learning how to trust our own intuition and our own sense of knowing for what's going to be best for a collective. I think organizations often seem to trust people the most when things are very stable and then crisis comes, change comes, and there seems to be this transformation to a top-down decision-making sort of approach to things, which now that I say it, I suppose means that whatever trust existed in those other times might not have really been trust at all. But but trust is innate in bees. We have to build it organizationally and interpersonally. How 
how do we take these lessons from these bees and then apply them to ourselves? Yeah, and and I talk a little bit about this in my work too. I think it's important to look to biology and biomimicry for inspiration for what we can learn, but then to also not create such an anthropomorphism that we are ignoring the differences between ourselves and honeybees. There is a need for strong mediation, someone can who can meet all emotions and all states of being where they are and respond to them well and hold them. So good mediation, good facilitation is so important to building a team that trusts each other. And so is time, like really having the time to build that trust and to build like a shared sense of intuition, a shared sense of meaning, a shared sense of purpose. This is where we're going. This is what we're committed to. These are the things we're willing to compromise on. These are the things we are not willing to compromise on. I also think it's really important in an organization that people's humanity can show up. Um, and I guess I touched on this when I talk about the capacity for us to understand differences within each other. Um, and those are differences of race, class, age, gender, sexuality, um, and, and ability, uh, neurodivergence of all different kinds, needs for rest, which are totally undervalued in the current workplace culture, um, and the importance of us having moments of, of big production and then moments of, of rest and contraction, which is another lesson from biomimicry that you can look to ecological systems and see that no one is ever going hard 24-7 because that's completely unsustainable in an ecological system. And you've said that there are two questions that you hear again and again when people come to know that you're a beekeeper. One of them is, do you get stung? And the answer is yes. And the other is, how are the bees doing? And I'd like to ask you a variation of that second question, because I don't expect you to be able to give a top-down view of bees in general across the world, but you keep bees, and I'd like to know how your bees are doing. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so, I I think there, we're in, in the U.S. at this moment in time, we're at this exciting moment that I dreamed about like 10 years ago that is now actually happening. So, there have been a lot of responses to colony collapse. There's been this sort of uh, pesticide-heavy response. There's been um, a forage response, which means what do the bees eat? How can we plant more of it? So important. Uh, there's also been a genetic selection and adaptation response, which we're a part of now. Uh, and so we're seeing that our bees are beginning to thrive in these, these adaptive climates where we are. And part of this is about our genetic selection over time. And part of it is about us as beekeepers getting better at what we're doing and doing it more effectively as a team, which took some time to work out for us to build that trust, for us to build that um, the sort of rituals and routines that were necessary for our team to thrive. But taking a sort of wider lens to that genetic selection piece, in our industry currently, there is a movement of beekeepers who are active in genetic selection, that they're selecting for bees who are resistant to varroa mites. They are selecting for bees who can thrive wintering where they are. Um, there's more regionally adaptive beekeepers 
active in their communities. And there are more beekeepers teaching other beekeepers how to raise their own queens. And so we're finally starting to weave relationships between those folks who are more like research scientists and beekeepers who are active in the field. Um, and that is all happening at the at the helm of a lot of that work uh, is women and queer folks. And I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm excited that queen rearing and raising your own queens is becoming more accessible because that is people's capacity to sustainably raise their own hives and not have to rely on buying their stock in every year from the pollination circuit. And so starting to break down that reliance on a part of the industry that is thriving but failing at the same time, like it's thriving in monocrop agriculture, but we all know that all of that has a, has a time clock on it, a time stamp on it, um, and isn't going to last forever as we're feeling more and more of the pressures of climate change. That's Ange Roll. They are a founder of They Keep Bees and the author of Radicalize the Hive, which is a collection of stories from beekeepers across the nation, a resource for new and intermediate beekeepers, and a manifesto for organizational change. Andrew, thank you. Thank you. It was great to be here. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 and on KCPW in Salt Lake City at 10 on Thursdays and noon on Sundays. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>